you can, please turn with me to the Gospel of John this morning. This Sunday is Palm Sunday, that time on the Christian calendar where we remember how Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem as predicted by the Old Testament prophets. And he comes in as a conquering king, the victor king who comes to the city of Jerusalem. This week before Resurrection Sunday, this week is the week that we remember the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ where he comes into the city of Jerusalem and the events unfold over a seven-day period of his trial, his conviction, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. So I pray this week that as you are preparing your spirits to worship next Sunday, that the importance of the truth, the true events that happened to our Lord and Savior, would come to your heart this week, not as something to overwhelm you and crush you, but but to humble you and to bring reverence for the importance of our salvation and the cost that that was necessary for the forgiveness of our sin. If you're able this morning, let's please stand as we read the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Let us read together, beginning in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place, to the, uh, to the place called the place of a skull, which is Aramaic, is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see where it shall be, for whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. Let's pray. Dear Father God, as we read these words, and we remember and imagine what it must have been like for your Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer the way he did, as he was condemned for no sin at all. No crime did he commit, but he was crucified. And they ignored him. They spat on him. They beat him. And he died. So God, I pray this morning that you would speak to us in your word and reveal to us exactly what you need us to see here as we see a comparison between two different ways of approaching this crucifixion. Some embraced it with humility and awe. Others were just flippant about it and saw no need. So God, I pray that you would teach us this morning through your word. Speak to us boldly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. I don't know about you, but 
if you've ever talked to anyone who is not a Christian and then compare what they say about Jesus to those who are truly passionate about Christ, you're going to get two different approaches here. You're going to get two different responses to Jesus. You've got some who are so sold out for the gospel that they will do anything for Jesus Christ and they worship Him in a way that is just unheard of and most people look at them like they're weird. When you look at somebody who is really loving Jesus and is sold out for the gospel, you're not going to stop them from worshiping and you're not going to stop them from preaching the gospel. Then you've got others when you talk to them who have nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever and want nothing to do with Him and nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with church. Their attitude toward Christ is, eh. You see, you've got two different approaches to Christ. There's only two responses. Either you are sold out for Christ and you are passionate for the gospel or you're just, eh. There is no in-between. Even those who give lip service to the gospel, who give lip service to Christianity, even then, when you really look at their heart and you look at the the true nature of their love for Christ, it's really just, eh. I think in this passage in John chapter 19 and in Christ's crucifixion narrative, we're going to see two different approaches here to Jesus. And we're going to see two different perspectives and two different reactions to the whole narrative and to Jesus himself. Whenever we look here in John chapter 19, we have to understand what preceded this event. In John chapter 18, we see the narrative of Jesus and Pilate really confronting each other. You could say that Pilate comes and confronts Jesus, but when you read this narrative in chapter 18, you see that Jesus is really confronting Pilate more. He's meeting Pilate right where he is, even though Pilate is in charge of many men, and he's in charge of governing great vast lands of of power. Jesus is looking at Pilate and saying, What is the truth, Pilate? And Pilate responds back to Jesus with just a flippant, well, what is truth? I don't know about you, but that's that's a very important question for us, especially in this day and age. There is a predominant understanding that truth is whatever you want it to be. My truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth, and don't you dare question my truth, because if you do, you're just being a bigot and judgmental. You know what happens whenever that's the response to the idea of truth? Really what you're saying is, we don't want to know what truth is. Because truth requires a lot of digging, and truth requires recognizing it for what it is. And sometimes truth requires a lot of thought to comprehend its vastness. And whenever we respond to truth in the way that Pilate here responds, and many people respond today, really what we're saying is we don't want to know the truth. Whenever we say that my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth, what we're opening up here and we're expecting is, don't you dare challenge my truth. And when we say don't challenge my truth, we're saying I really don't want to know it. And that's what's happening here. Jesus and Pilate in chapter 18, they're wrestling with the truth of Jesus's charges here. Are you really the king of the Jews? Are you really this rebel? Are you somebody who's trying to stir up trouble? Are you trying to take the kingdom back? And of course Jesus is, but he's doing so in a way that the Romans would never understand. And actually many of the religious Jewish leaders would never embrace. You see, when Pilate found Jesus innocent, Pilate also had harsh political backlash. Because look in verse 18, verse 12. Pilate, in, in examining Jesus and examining what the truth is of the situation, Pilate really concludes that Jesus is innocent. I mean, that is really Pilate's judgment. Chapter 18, verse 12, he says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officials 
officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Ananias, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so here we see here the, the reality of what's going on. As Jesus is standing before Pilate, Pilate says here in verse 38, Pilate said to him, What is the truth? After he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, verse 38. That's Pilate's judgment here on Jesus. Even though he was sent before Caiaphas the high priest, and Caiaphas the high priest demanded, uh, demanded a judgment from Pilate, Pilate says here in verse 38, I tell you, I find no guilt in him. That's the truth. But then over in chapter 19, verse 16, Jesus, even though he was found really innocent by Pilate, there was such harsh political backlash that Jesus nevertheless faces the cruelty of a punishment that he did not deserve. That's what we must understand here as we go into chapter 19 and the crucifixion story. We must understand all of this pain and suffering that Jesus suffers here and that he endures here is actually something he did not earn. He willingly steps up to the cross and lays down on the cross. He is innocent. Not one ounce of guilt in him. In verse 17 of chapter 19, we see this, that as Jesus is delivered to be crucified, he goes out and he bears his own cross And he goes to this place outside of the city, this place of the skull, which is called Golgotha. There's an important point here that we must understand. Why is it that Jesus goes to this place? First of all, I want to propose to you that Jesus was in control of every step of this crucifixion process. From the point of his condemnation and his his trial and, and everything in between, Jesus, even though it looks like he's not in control, and that the Roman authorities and the religious leaders were actually trying, were actually in control of Jesus, I would argue that Jesus was in control of every step of the process. Because this was a prophecy fulfilled. Golgotha was this place outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus chose this place in this week of passion and this week of sacrifice. He chose this place, and He allowed all of this to transpire. God's providence allowed everything to play out the way it was, because if you go all the way back to Leviticus chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 16, you don't have to turn there if you don't want, but in the book of Leviticus, when Moses lays down the law, Whenever there was a sacrifice of blood, that sacrifice of blood was outside of the camp. And this place of Golgotha was outside of the holy city of Jerusalem. Do you see how everything is playing out here? Nothing is new. Everything that God ordained through the Mosaic law for the atonement of sins through the sacrifice of animals, Jesus is doing the exact same thing here as He is condemned as an innocent lamb. He goes outside of Jerusalem to this place of the skull called Golgotha, just as the high priest used to take the innocent lamb outside of the, tent, outside of the camp to a place of sacrifice. You see what Jesus is doing here? We also see this in Hebrews chapter 13. Again, if you're taking notes, jot it down. But Hebrews chapter 13 really makes this connection that just as the sacrifices of the high priest in the Old Testament Mosaic law were outside of the camp, Jesus himself sacrificed as the innocent lamb for your sins and my sins outside of the city. 
The second thing we see here at the place of Golgotha is that in Deuteronomy chapter 21, the Mosaic law makes it real clear that anyone who is hanged in a tree is cursed. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. Anyone who is hanging in a tree, you see how they have cursed God and they have a cursed end. We think of even King David's son Absalom. You know how King David's son Absalom died? He was trying to rise up against his father David with a military coup. And how does Absalom die? His hair gets caught up in a tree. Anyone who is hung in a tree is cursed because they are fighting against God's truth. But Christ here, being God in the flesh, God the Father and God the Son are one. Jesus Himself is cursed even though He's innocent. He is cursed even though He is sinless. He is cursed because of your sin and my sin. And He willingly takes that upon Himself. Because Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that Jesus Christ Himself is cursed, but He's cursed for us as we are preparing our spirits to celebrate next week. And the resurrection of Jesus is worthy of celebration. But we must go into the celebration first with a a humble preparation for our spirit of understanding the sobriety of the events. Jesus died and He suffered. He didn't do anything to earn it. He willingly took on the punishment that you and I rightly earned. You and I sin and we reject God and we want to be our own gods ourselves and we want to control our own destinies and we want to control our own lives and we tell God we don't need you, God, because we're strong. That's sin. And Jesus Himself says, I love you enough to pay the price for that sin. I want to restore you to God the Father as it is supposed to be. And Jesus willingly goes through everything that is necessary to be the innocent lamb for you and me. And we see this as he goes to the place of Golgotha. He goes so willingly as the sacrificial lamb does. Now when we go here a little bit further in verse 18 of chapter 19, uh, John's Gospel says, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. We know the scene. I mean, if, even if you've never grown up in church, you see this time of year on television and, and now on the Internet, you see pictures and movies and, and all of these images of three crosses on a hill. Jesus in the middle with two thieves, on one on either side. Everybody's familiar with that story. Even if you're not a Christian, you're going to see Bible movies on streaming services. If you've got Amazon Prime, you're, you're seeing they're promoting a lot of Bible movies. And we've got a Roku at home now with these streaming things. And they're really pushing Bible stories this time of year. Even the secular world, they recognize this time of year, everybody's interested in Bible stories. Even if you're not a Christian, this time of year it's okay to think about the Bible. So everyone is familiar that Jesus was hung on a cross between two thieves. I think we've got some really interesting things here that we can understand from what God is trying to tell us here. When we have two thieves here hung on either side of Jesus, I think these two thieves actually represent two different perspectives of how you acknowledge Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was condemned with all the sinners, even though Jesus Himself was not a sinner, Jesus Himself was not a criminal, He was condemned with the thieves. Herman Melville, in his novel Moby Dick, actually calls Adam and Eve the two orchard thieves. Ponder this for a minute. What started the entire separation of humanity from God the Father, the Creator, were two people acting as thieves, stealing 
from God's fruit in the garden. They stole the fruit, but they also stole the right to be God's children. They stole the right of independence. They said, God, we can make our own decisions on our own. We don't need to obey you. They were thieves. They stole from God. They stole God's sovereignty from Him and placed it upon themselves. We are sovereign because we can make our own decisions. And that was the opening door to all sin for all mankind. The curse of Adam that began in the garden with two thieves stealing the right of sovereignty from God is something that we carry today. We carry the curse of Adam today. Every one of us are born under that curse because something was stolen. Thieves stole God's glorious sovereignty away. And I see here Jesus is hung between two thieves and I don't think that is something to be taken lightly. I think that's a grand picture that God is trying to get us to see here. You see, God has two purposes. Number one, the dreadful weight of God's wrath against sin is something we cannot ignore. Whenever sin entered the world, God did not create sin. God did not create evil. But evil was ushered into the creation because Adam and Eve themselves... uh, went against God and did exactly what he said not to do. And in doubting God's sovereignty and doubting God's love and grace, Adam and Eve actually ushered in evil and sin into God's perfect creation. And the weight of that is so overpowering. God's wrath, His righteous wrath against that offense is something that we cannot comprehend fully because if we do, we will be crushed in our spirit. So God, there's two purposes here in what God is doing. The dreadful weight of God's wrath against sin is the first thing that God wants to deal with. That's the first purpose of the crucifixion. The second purpose we have here is God's infinite goodness toward us. Even though Jesus Himself is facing a wrath that you and I rightly deserve, and you and I would never be able to tolerate and get through without being crushed ourselves, Jesus Christ takes on something, takes on God's wrath, so that we won't have to. And God, in that wrath and that anger, at the same time, is showing His mercy and His love toward us. And when you look at the two thieves, I think you're going to see both things at play here. You see, one thief receives God's wrath as he rages against Jesus and the grace that is obviously on display here. And one thief, the other one, he actually receives God's goodness because he is humble and repentant in the face of this crucifixion. If you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We're going to look... The Gospel of John does not record what the words of these thieves are, but Luke chapter 23 does. Turn over to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 39. These are actually, this is the the account of the two thieves, one on either side of Jesus. Here's what they said. Luke 23, beginning in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, that's Jesus, saying, you are not, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He rails against Jesus, save yourself and us, get us off this cross, Jesus. It was as if he was demanding of Jesus, do this or else. Verse 40, But the other thief rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, you've got two different responses to Jesus here at the time of crucifixion. You've got one criminal who was right. I, mean, I think he was crucified because he, he had just had a bad attitude. Now, clearly, he, he did some things wrong. He, he was a thief. He was probably murdered somebody. We don't know the exact charges of the criminal, but he was a bad dude. And you can see his bad attitude in how he's talking to Jesus. His attitude was selfish. His attitude was, it's all about me. And he's demanding of Jesus, save us, Jesus. Make us get off this cross and show everybody how powerful you are. His attitude was not humble. His attitude was not repentant. His attitude was demanding. And his attitude was all about me. How many of us approach Jesus with that same attitude? Jesus, give me what I want right now. I deserve it. I have earned it. Give it to me now. How many of us have that attitude toward Christ? How many of us, I mean, we may not have it as a consistency, but how many of us have ever talked to Jesus that way in our prayers? What was the result of that thief's attitude? He was condemned because he should have been condemned. He died a horrible crucifixion without any hope of salvation because of his attitude toward Jesus and toward the whole situation. He was focused on himself and himself alone, and he demanded of Jesus, do this for me or else. That's the attitude of sin. That's the attitude that Adam and Eve really had when they, for, when they took the forbidden fruit, when they disobeyed God. They said, we're going to do this on our own. I don't care what you say, God. We're going to do this. That's the attitude of the one thief. But look at the other attitude in Luke chapter 23 here of the other criminal. Verse 40, But the other, speaking of the other criminal, but the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Notice the difference in language here. One criminal, one thief, was demanding of Jesus, but the other one was respectfully fearful of God. He, re- he, he acknowledged his sin. He acknowledged his failure. He said, We are condemned rightly because... We've done all kinds of horrible things. He acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges what he's done. And he says, I placed myself here. But then he looks to Jesus. This is a prayer of repentance. Verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice that this second thief does not, he does not have an entitled expectation to go to heaven. I want to point that out here. That, that, that second thief on the cross does not have an entitled expectation of going to heaven. Even though he knew he was sinful, even though he knew he was getting ready to die, he said, I'm going to go into death knowing that I am guilty. And his attitude toward Jesus is, Jesus, remember me when you get into your kingdom, as if, Jesus, you're going somewhere that I'm not. But notice how Jesus responds to that attitude, that attitude of humility, of, dear Jesus, I know I'm not going where you are because I'm not worthy. Here's what Jesus says in verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Who is it that grants access to heaven? It was not the sinner thief who even though he was humble, he does not make his own path to heaven. How does this second thief get to heaven? Simply because Jesus says, you're coming with me. Notice the two differences here, these two different approaches to Christ. One is arrogant and demanding, do this for us, save us Jesus. He is rejected. But the other one with humility, understanding he's not going anywhere, understanding that he's not worthy of the kingdom, that he's not worthy of salvation, Actually, acknowledging his own fate. I'm going to die, and I'm not going anywhere. He's the one 
that Jesus saves. He's the one that Jesus takes to paradise. You see, there's two different approaches to Christ here at this time of year. Either we are demanding of Jesus to give us what we want, or we are humble and realize we don't deserve any of it. We don't make demands of Christ. Jesus Himself lovingly saves us. I'm going to say that one more time and drive that home. It is Jesus Himself who humbly, lovingly saves us. Our salvation is not of anything that we manufacture. Our salvation is not anything that we demand. Our salvation comes 100% from the sovereignty of God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. They are the only ones. Jesus Himself decides who goes. Just like last week when we looked uh, at our sermon last week, it is God the Father who gives who He wants to Jesus. You remember Jesus' prayer in the garden? In John chapter 17, it was, God, it was Jesus Himself who prays to the Father for the ones that the Father gives Him. You and I don't determine our salvation. God the Father does. That's an important response here to the Gospel. Jesus is going to take many people to heaven, but He's not going to take everybody. Because he knows that people's attitudes toward him are not humble. He knows that people's attitude toward the gospel is not genuine. He knows that people's attitude toward salvation is one of entitlement rather than one of humility and gratefulness. The only ones who get to go to heaven, we see this at the crucifixion. The only ones who go with Jesus to paradise are the ones who acknowledge that they're not worthy of going and that they can't get there on their own. And Jesus says... I'm going to take you with me. Amen. Now let's read further here in John chapter 19. Go to verse 21. Actually, let's look at verse 19 first. Then we'll jump into 20 and 21. Because I think that the significance of the sign that was above Jesus also points out you've got two different approaches here to Christ. Verse 19 of John chapter 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews... And this sign that was above Jesus was actually written in three different languages, one in Aramaic, one in Latin, and one in Greek. Aramaic was the common tongue of the region. Most everybody spoke and and did trade in Aramaic. The other was Latin because of the Roman influence in this region, because Latin is the language of Rome. And then in Greek, which was also a very common trade language uh, throughout all of the Roman Empire. And because Jerusalem was a major trade center and a major harmony and blend of many different cultures and languages, in order to write it in three different languages, that was just so that anyone who passed by could understand the charges. Verse 21, So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. You see what we've got here in verse 21? You've got two different approaches to Jesus that we still have today. You have some who declare rightly and justifiably that Jesus is the King of the Jews. He is the King of God's kingdom. He is the King of the church. He is the King of my life, period. And then you've got those out there that says, well, Jesus just says He is. Now, think about that that attitude, that, that one phrase there. What's behind that one phrase of Jesus says He's the King of the Jews? That's really just a hint of doubt trying to, to plug in there just a well, Jesus just says it is. That doesn't mean it's true. Well, that's kind of like the same thing of saying, well, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. Anytime somebody says, well, in my opinion, I think, whatever. What are we saying when we say that? 
well, don't judge me. This is just my opinion. And we're not solid in our understanding or we're not firm in our conviction of what we're getting ready to say. It's like we're apologizing for what we're getting ready to say. Well, in my opinion, I think Jesus is, is the Lord. How many of us have said that? Well, now, in my opinion, Jesus is the Savior. Oh, in my opinion, Jesus is good. But, you know, you don't have to believe that if you don't want to. How many of us have been guilty of saying that to folks? Because we don't, we're afraid of the backlash here. You know, what I like about this text is as much as Pilate is guilty of condemning Jesus to death and as much as Pilate is guilty in not standing up and being the leader he should have been and as much as Pilate is guilty for, for submitting to the, the pressure of the politics here and crucifying Jesus, verse 22, Pilate stands up and he, he actually stands up to the, to the Jews, the Jewish leaders who pressured him into this and Pilate says, I have written what I have written. I think Pilate, in a back sort of way, is acknowledging from his interaction with Jesus that Jesus is the truth that Pilate himself was questioning. Because that famous question from Pilate was, what is truth? I think through these whole events, Pilate eventually sees it. Now, I I don't know if Pilate is in heaven right now. I don't know if God the Father condemns Pilate for his actions because Pilate was clearly used in God's providence to carry out these events. But I do like the fact that in this text, what we see here, two different approaches to Jesus. Pilate, in the end, stands up and says, He is the King of the Jews, and I'm not backing down. You see the point here? You see, truth here is believed to be a common understanding. Most people say, yeah, we know what truth is. You know, truth stands up for itself, but not many everybody recognizes it. Because here's the thing, what, what God declares as true far exceeds any human understanding of what is true. And Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the King of the Kingdom. Jesus Christ is the Savior of all who claim His name. And the world doesn't understand that. The world will never grasp it because Jesus is too far above their understanding. This is why it requires God's Holy Spirit changing us, making us new in Christ, changing our mind to be in the mind of Christ, to change our very nature as sinful people into people who love and worship Him and, and are holy because God is holy. Then and only then can we understand the truth. You see the significant distinction here between the truth about Jesus and these okay nominal ideas about Jesus is really about someone's willingness to accept the truth. You see, there is... The truth that Jesus is, and then there's the truth that we say, eh, the eh truth is not truth at all. They, well, if you, if you believe Jesus is Christ, then eh, okay, that's good for you. That's a lie. That's not dedication. That's not loyalty. That's not submission to His Lordship. You see, there's two ways to be with Jesus. <laughs> Either there's this nominal acceptance, and when I say nominal acceptance, that's the eh. You know, I'm checking off the list. I'm going to the Bible studies. I'm going to the churches. Oh, I'm going to go to church on Easter and I'm going to sit in the pews. I must be okay. I, you know, Jesus is all right. But then when you leave this building and you go back to your work and you go back to your homes, you never once think about Jesus for six more days. That's a nominal approach to Jesus. That's, in other words, you, you are following Jesus for the laws and the regulations of doing. That's what nominal means. And you're on the outskirts. You're just on the fringe. You're not really fully committed. 
But the, but the other way to acknowledge Jesus, and this is the only real way to acknowledge Jesus, is to truly surrender because Jesus is the truth. To truly surrender to the reality and the truth that we our sin keeps us from God and we are totally separated from God and there's no way to get back to God's graces except through the blood of Christ. And when that changes you, then you know without a doubt that you have been changed and you know without a doubt that you love Jesus Christ and He loves you. There is no halfway. There is no, well, He said He was the King of the Jews. No, He is the King of the Jews. There is no, well, He's okay for you if you like Christianity. That's all right. No, He is the Lord. He is the one who saves all who call upon His name. And I want to emphasize this. Jesus saves those who call upon His name. And you do not call upon the name of Christ unless God the Holy Spirit is causing you to call out His name. We don't call out Christ's name on our own power. We can't. Because if we could, we would save ourselves. And that's the whole beauty of the gospel. We can't. We can't call on Christ unless God the Father stirs our spirit to do so. So it is God who saves us. It is God who changes us. And then, and only then, when our will is transformed as God wants it transformed, in that process, we are calling out to Christ and we are saved throughout the whole thing. And it is God Himself orchestrating every step of the way. That's amazing. Because if it's up to you and me, we'd cry out to Jesus and tell Him what to do. I know we got a lot of bossy people in this room. Can anybody confess to that sin? I'm bossy and I want things my way. I don't work here, folks. Jesus Christ will save us if and only if our sinful will is transformed by God Almighty through the blood of the Son to be humble and respectful, but also bold and forceful for the truth. So I don't know where you stand right now today before the Lord, but this message here is what God's Word says. As we prepare our lives this week to worship next week, to celebrate His resurrection, let us remember where we stand before the Lord. Even if we are saved and, and we have called upon the name of the Lord and we have served the church and served Christ for a long time, we are still sinners saved by grace every single day. Let us remember the cost for that gift that we've been given through Christ. Let's remember it's not something that we demand. It is not something we're entitled to at all. But God saves us anyway. And so when we come back here in seven more days to celebrate that Jesus Christ did die, but He's no longer dead, let's remember what that means. Amen? If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Bryant, I'm that thief on the cross that has a demand of Christ. I expect Jesus to do what I want Him to do. If that's you, and you feel guilty of that, I'm glad you feel guilty of that, and I want you to really ask the Lord to change you. I want us all to have the attitude of that second thief on the cross that was humble, that said, Jesus, you didn't do anything to deserve this. I'm the one who put you here. Remember me, dear Lord, when you get to heaven. Let's approach Jesus with a sense of humility and brokenness, because He is Lord. My prayer for you is that if your attitude is the first criminal, that God would change your spirit to be the humble like the second criminal. And that Christ Himself would look upon you with affection and love and redeem you.
Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank You for Your Word. As we see in this narrative of the crucifixion of Your Son, we see so many different attitudes here toward the the, the circumstances. We see those who were arrogant and demanding and doubted Christ's lordship and His Messiahship. But then we have those who were broken and humble and acknowledged that Jesus was innocent and holy. And I pray, God, right now, anyone who's listening to this prayer, I pray, God, that Your Spirit is stirring in each inside of every one of us Even those who have been Christians for a long time, Lord, if we have become so arrogant and demanding that we have positioned ourselves above your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that you would forgive us, but change us and break us if necessary. But, Lord, if anyone is here who does not know you and they are humble and broken and they acknowledge their sin, I pray, dear God, that you would, through your grace, love them and save them where they are, and change them into the Christ-likeness that Your Word promises. I pray, God, this week that as we ramp up to the celebration of Easter next week, the Resurrection Sunday that is the truth of our, our, our worship, I pray, God, that You would prepare us to come with a sense of joy, but that joy comes not out of entitlement, but that joy, dear God, comes out of humility and gratefulness. Use us, dear God, this week. Introduce us to people that you want to be drawn into the kingdom. Use this season, Lord, where people are more receptive to the gospel for your glory. May we use, may we use the words of your scripture. May we use the truth of our salvation through Jesus Christ as you direct, dear God, to draw somebody here. We thank you, Lord, for all of this. We thank you for your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.